2: ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet, but if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know it's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than five G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022, and Cox serviceable areas. Visit cox.com slash internet for details.
0: From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West.
1: The Chamberlain. He's got it.
0: Jerry West made it from the other side of the midcourt stripe. strike. To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is on there celebrating. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win. Yes! LeBron James! And rings were handed out like candy. A one. Here's Jordan.
2: Yes! It's, all over. The
0: won. it's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Vera Bouguet. And it starts right now.
1: Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bouguet, and with me this week I've got a very special guest. He's a regular on the program. He's a fellow sports business classroom alum, and uh, we're recording this episode on Tuesday night after uh, the the Toronto-Philly Game 5 and the Denver and Portland Game 5s. And uh, my guest uh, tonight is a, a huge Raptors fan, so I assume he's in a great mood, but his name is Stephen Lowe. Stephen, thanks so much for coming on.
0: Thanks for having me back on, Garrett. And uh, you're right, I'm in a terrific
1: mood. Yeah, and that's uh, that's off of a, a terrific performance from uh, from the Toronto Raptors, absolutely demolishing the Philadelphia 76ers in Game 5 in Toronto to take a 3-2 to two series lead. And uh, this has been a really, uh, you know, kind of weird series. Neither team, I feel like, has really played their best in the same game. Uh, But this is the second game in the series where Toronto has really just taken it to the 76ers. Yeah, it's been interesting.
0: It's kind of been, you know, both teams have been wildly inconsistent. Um, And, you know, we've had a couple good close games, Game 2 and 4 in particular. Um, but then you know we've had now two games where the Raptors have blown out the Sixers, and then uh, a game there in Game Three where Sixers kind of blew out the Raptors. So um, it's definitely uh, been a, a tale of two different teams here.
1: Yeah, and that that Game One in which the the Raptors had a, a big blowout, it was on the on the heels of you know Kawhi Leonard and Pascal Siakam just both shooting the lights out. I think Siakam went 12 for. F- for uh, 15 and Kawhi was 16 of 23 in that game one so it was kind of one of those things where you know it was one of those feel-out games and and the Sixers didn't really take anything away and of course you know Siakam and Leonard are the two guys that the Raptors really uh, really rely on to to score but in that game too I think the big adjustment that Brett Brown made that really worked was putting Joel Embiid on Siakam and and you know, in large part to try to take away Siakam's isolation game that was so effective in that game one.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that was a really good coaching move um, by by Brown there. Um, you know, I think that, you know, with the blowout in game one, um, it seemed like Nurse kind of just stuck with his rotations um, in, that, that he had during the Orlando series, um, and he didn't really react and I, I know it's easier said than done to make in-game adjustments, but that really threw um, Siakam out of the game and then um, really hurt their spacing as well. So I thought that was actually a really um, good move there by Brown.
1: Well, yeah, and, and you know the, with Embiid on him, not only was he able to take away that isolation game, but Embiid almost was, you know, for the whole series really, has treated Siakam like a non-shooter and really gave him some dare shots. And, uh, you know, in this game five, he was able to hit a couple. But for a few games there, it looked like Siakam really had lost confidence. There were possessions where he would catch it, uh, you know, wide open behind the three-point line and not even really look at the rim.
0: Yeah, yeah. um, You know, I think that that's just good scouting by the Sixers there. um, Siakam's improved a lot as a three-point shooter this season. Um, But he's predominantly had success from the corners. And the way that the Sixers were kind of guarding him, they were basically let, let, letting him, you know, stay wide open above the break and, you know, daring him to make those elbow threes and, you know, the top-of-the-arc threes, which he didn't look very comfortable taking. Um, but he made a few today, and, and, you know, if he could continue to make those, you know, that will be a big difference maker um, for the Raptors, as, you know, clearly evident today.
1: Well, yeah, in that, in that game, too, you know, they were able to, to kind of, uh, you know, create an inefficient offense for, for the Raptors through, you know, limiting Siakam. I think Danny Green had a bunch of open looks in that game, too. He went one for six, including a couple in the final minute that could have tied the ball game. But, you know, the 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 thing that was interesting to me was the Sixers really didn't solve any of their offensive issues in that game two win. It was mostly just holding the Raptors down to their level, and uh, they really clawed out a, a a uh, you know, a really defensive sort of grudge match in that right. game two. And then in game three, the offensive adjustments came. Uh, it, it's always funny to me, you know, with the, with, you, know, you talk about the, the adjustments that Brett Brown has made. I think, you know, you can, you can talk about the fact that, yes, he did a great job. He made a great decision putting beat on Siakam, but he didn't do anything to help the Sixers score in game two. They just were fortunate that, that the defensive adjustments all were really effective, uh, but but then that kind of paid off because then in Game Three they were able to make the offensive adjustments. They started playing more pick and roll with with Butler and Harris, and leaving Ben Simmons off the basketball. And of course, then in that Game Three, in which was the the, the lone Sixers blowout win in the series, they got uh, they got an incredible performance from Embiid. Yeah, yeah, that, that's
0: exactly um, what I saw too, and that that was the game. Uh... Uh, I'm sure you know many Raptors fans um, can echo the sentiment. You know, being disappointed, and being down two-one in the series. Um, you know, that was the game that was disappointed in Nurse not being able to make adjustments um, after that game two loss. Um, you know, I thought that it was, it was pretty evident that some of these bench-heavy units that he was playing were just not working with the the way that um, you know the Sixers were were you know using their substitution pattern to keep three starters on the floor. And then, you know, you mentioned that the butler uh, MB pick pick-and-roll. Um, they were really being able to, to uh, abuse that, especially when Marc Gasol was off the floor. And I think that that was the game that MB really got it going. And, um, you know, similar to, to how they guarded Siakam, where they leave him wide open behind the three-point line, um, the Raptors have largely been letting Embiid shoot those threes. They're not really coming out to contest them heavily. Uh, and that was the game where he made a few of them, um, and uh, that really opened things up for him. I felt that the that, you know, players started biting on his feet a little bit. He was able to open things up with his pump-and-go game going to the
1: rim. Well, yeah, and you know, the, the spacing for the Sixers is, is already an issue with that starting lineup again because Ben Simmons can't shoot, and then you know, yeah. typically Embiid has struggled with that three-point shot. But, you know, yep. you, the, they were able to put Embiid in that dunker's, or excuse me, Simmons in that dunker's spot uh, yep. along the baseline. And then having Embiid roll to the rim, he's just so so tough to stop when he's on the move. And, you know, then when he was able to miss, Simmons was able to be active on the offensive glass. Uh, and, and just getting Embiid, you know, in motion and, and getting him moving, helped him I think because you know Gasol has done such a great job with his post defense when they just throw it into him but you know I think the Gasol's biggest weakness is the fact that he can't move as well laterally
0: yeah exactly and and, you know they largely have been um, guarding a me by having Gasol kind of come up a little bit to challenge the three-point shot but not get all the way up to him to you know bite on the pump and go um but yeah if to making those, then uh, it really does make up a tough guard for Gasol. Um, but largely, you know, like uh, I think that that's kind of been what's hurting them. Uh, you mentioned uh, the spacing, and you know, the more and more I look at it, I, I just can't envision an optimal offense with, you know, those two guys as your key cogs um, on the floor at the same time, kind of occupying the same spaces on the floor. Um, unless one of them significantly uh, you know, improves as a shooter.
1: Yeah, and I've, I've heard several people over the, the last couple of days on various podcasts kind of compare how they've sort of taken Ben Simmons' role as the lead ball handler and, and kind of made him a role player. They've compared him now to kind of playing the role of, of Draymond Green on this Sixers team. And, you know, when he grabs a defensive rebound, able to push it in transition... And because he's got that that ball handling and that those passing skills, but then in the half court, you know, he he plays more as a, a screen guy, a guy that, uh, you know, if if teams are leaving him, he can he can set some off ball picks and stuff. But but you know they they've been able to free up guys like Tobias Harris on 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 plenty of occasions in this series, and especially in that game four, moving on to that game in which Toronto got a huge road win to to take home court advantage back, and and even the series. Harris got a bunch of open looks, very similar to, you know, Danny Green in that game two loss for the Raptors where he got a bunch of good looks and just didn't knock them down. Harris was the same way in that game four loss for the Sixers.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, the shooting woes of Harris really affected them. Um, you know, because he, you know, other than Redick, you know, Butler and Harris are kind of the, the guys who should, should be helping space the floor. Um, and if Harris isn't hitting his shots, it just really shrinks the court for them. Um, but he's, he's had a ton of open looks, you know, and you'd imagine that, you know, eventually he would start knocking them down, but he's really just hasn't looked very comfortable this entire series. Um, and I think you, you have to credit Siobhan, too, for really taking, seeming to take him out of the comfort zone by, you know, being able to close out really quickly um, on some of those possessions and throwing him, you know, out of rhythm, it seems like.
1: Yeah, it's it's been a it's a bit an interesting series in terms of which players have stepped up. I already mentioned yeah. Embiid has been has been really confusing, yeah. and you know he's he's been dealing apparently with some upper respiratory illness, and then also the right. the, the knee tendinitis that he's been dealing with for a while now. But and
0: he had the gastroenteritis on what was that game or the game one? <laughs> um, yeah, it seems like <laughs> it seems like something new with him every every other game. And, yeah, it's really unfortunate for the Sixers, but. Um, It seems like he's had kind of a couple different ailments so far this series.
1: Yeah, and so they they really haven't gotten consistent production from him. He's been he's been, you know, well below average in four of the five games. Yeah. And despite that though, Philly has has made this pretty competitive and and a big reason for that is the bench play. And and this is the biggest shocker for me in this series. You know, coming in, I think pretty much every expert. Would have said that Toronto had the edge in, in bench play with the likes of Ibaka and Van Fleet and Powell, uh, and then of course uh, OG and Anobi was a pretty consistent rotation player, but he had the uh, appendicitis. But and you know you talk about Philly, and this was a team that they did acquire James Ennis at the uh, the trade deadline, and that ended up being a, a big move. But um, you know the their bench really. Didn't consist of anybody that they that Brett Brown could trust. I mean, T.J. McConnell's been out of the rotation. Uh, they they were able to get the likes of Boban Marjanovic and and Mike Scott in that uh, in that Tobias Harris trade, but Boban has really been. You know, after that game one, where they ran him off, the Raptors ran him off the floor. He hasn't really been a uh, a productive figure, but a guy like Greg Monroe, who who used to be a Raptor even earlier this season, has has stepped up and and played reasonably well at times. What has been your thoughts as to as to why this has played out this way with the with the two teams' benches? Yeah, you
0: know, uh, I still think there's more talent on the Raptors' bench. Um, This is just a I, I think it begins with. You know, we we can start with Fred, uh, that lead, who, you know, in theory is another ball handler, you know, has a reasonably reliable jump shot and, you know, can create some dribble drive penetration. Um, He really struggles with larger defenders on him. Um, And, you know, he, he really doesn't have a place in the series. It feels like he had a better game today. But, you know, when he has, you know, the likes of Jimmy Butler or even... Um, James Ennis is giving him some trouble with his length. Um, you know, he's like not—he's not even a true six-footer, and I think that he's been kind of exposed a little bit this series, um, where when, when his shot's not going, um, he's kind of a net negative on the floor, um, especially when I when I felt like on the defensive end where he was just uh, too small to guard some of the larger guards there, and then uh, too slow to kind of chase Redick or Ennis around screens. Uh, which gave them some open looks. I think that's been a part of it. Um, I think Brett Brown gets you know should have credit there for not playing TJ McConnell um, to really neutralize Charles' bench. And also, you know, I, I mentioned you know earlier in the series, nurses' rotations were pretty suspect. Um, the, 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 I felt like the, the Sixers did a better job of kind of uh, staggering their bench with their starters um, so that. Uh, They never really relied on many bench-heavy units, whereas the Raptors were playing still at times, you know, three to four bench players with one starter, and those units have been very unsuccessful for them. Um, And then also, you know, playing Ibaka against against uh, Embiid, I think that that um, affected him on the offensive end as well. So I think those were kind of some of the things I saw, Um, and I think that you know, for for the Raptors. Nurse, and he's been so, you know, in Game 4 and Game 5, so I will give him credit for that. Uh, I think he just needs to be a little more cognizant on the matchups and when to use, you know, when to put players in, you know, the the best positions to succeed. Um, And I think that that's kind of been the issues plaguing uh, the bench. It's just been a bad matchup for a lot of those guys.
1: Yeah, and I think Nurse, yeah, has done a better job of getting Ibaka in there in those non-Embied minutes, and, and he's played well the last couple of the games. I think the big adjustment Nurse made in that Game Four was essentially realizing that Van Fleet and Powell were not getting it done, and just basically playing six guys for the most part with the starters plus Ibaka, and uh, they were able to scrape out that road win. But you know, the the one thing that I've thought all series long in, in terms of trying to get Van Fleet going a little bit, and you, you're absolutely right, the whole idea of of him dealing with players that are a little bit bigger than him is an issue. I also think. You know when he when he drives past those bigger defenders, which I think he has the advantage. You know when when you're a point guard, and even I think Lowry has this advantage as well. Which I think in Game Five, Lowry did a better job of getting to the bucket. But if you're a point guard defended by wings, the advantage you have is quickness and to get past them. But with Van Fleet going up against Embiid, because Philly has those rotations where Embiid. Rests early in the first quarter and comes back towards the end of the first and plays at the start of the second. Van Fleet would drive past guys and Embiid would be there at the rim. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I think that's, he's really struggled with that. And I think also um, the lineups where you had uh, both, um, you know, uh, Van Fleet was out there a lot with Powell and uh, Lowry, that was just a really small lineup. Um, and it did feel like when Bentley would turn the corner, he would get lost in the trees, and he would become a little bit tentative and not not sure, you know, what what to do. Um, and I think that that was definitely an issue. Um, and you know, for me, I've kind of had an issue with Fred all season. I just felt that his decision making was just a little bit slower um, than in the past. I think that when he was a part of you know the, the previous season where they had this bench unit um, where he's playing a lot with Siakam and, uh, Pirtle and DeLon Wright, all who were, um, you know, more, you know, less so ISO scores. Um, they were more, you know, ball moving unit. I felt like he was more comfortable there. Whereas now when he's, you know, spotting, on, spotting, spotting up for a Siakam or, or a, uh, Kawhi Leonard, he, you know, just didn't really, he didn't seem to be making, uh, as good quick decisions. Um, uh, as a spot player, and uh, I think that's affected him a little bit this series as well.
1: Well, yeah, and it goes to the question of, you know, if you've got these bench players that have succeeded all year long against fellow second units or other, other yeah. teams' second units, and then you get into the playoffs, you're not only dealing with better teams, better personnel, but then you're dealing with teams playing their starters longer. Uh, it is interesting to me, some of these guys that have kind of been prevented from, from succeeding. I think we've seen a couple of other uh, backup point guards in these playoffs really struggle as well. But, uh, the, the other thing with, with Van Fleet specifically, I think, that causes him some issues is his pull-up jumper is, is kind of a yeah. slow release. And he's had that shot blocked a couple of times just because he, he, he's not quick to get it off.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he, He's just a little bit of a, he's more of a set shooter as well. Um, And, you know, as with that jump shot, you know, it kind of works better in the catch-and-shoot, but when he comes around, you know, with his size, um, getting into the middle of the lane, you're absolutely right when Embiid or a larger player is closing out on him. He's, you know, has a tough time um, getting that off quickly. Um, But for me, you know, I just kind of take a step back away from the series. It, it It does beg the question in terms of team building, um you know, does it ever make sense to pay, you know, a backup guard, you know, the, a, a nine, you know, an eight to $12 million contract that, you know, like, uh, see, uh um, the man's making $9 million and Powell's making, you know, $10 million a year. Uh, you know, when, when you see the likes of guys like, you know, Ennis and like Scott getting picked up as, in, during the deadline for, for scraps, right? Um even a player like Austin Rivers was available for the veteran minimum Yeah, you know, It does beg that question, you know, it, it, from a team building's perspective, does it ever make sense to give out these contracts? Um, you know, I think that I, that's that been kind of the question in the back of my mind while I'm watching this series.
1: Well, yeah, that that is a, that is a really good point, point. and you're referencing that because uh, Masai Ujuri, the GM of the Raptors, gave Van Felita, what, a two-year $18 million deal, I believe? Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, it's it's a very intriguing question. Now, again, this could just be a bad matchup for Van Fleet. I I feel like I you know he he uh, he had a I I think it was last season where he he struggled yeah. in the playoffs, but I think that was mainly because of a shoulder injury. Uh, but but he's had previous playoffs where I thought he performed reasonably well. Um, so so perhaps it could just be a matchup thing, and and maybe if they were to you know if they are to get out of this series and get to a conference finals, maybe he'll he'll have some more success. Uh, against a team that maybe plays another traditional point guard Um, but but then also you know you're you're giving out a contract and i know right now you know with the recency bias you're you're completely focused on the playoffs but van fleet has been a solid uh, you know a a really good one of the best backup point guards for an 82 game regular season as well and and that certainly has some value no yeah that's
0: absolutely right and you know Putting, giving out these contracts to these regular season players has, you know, afforded the Raptors' ability to, you know, manage Kawhi, you know, like with the with the load management program they put him on. Um, and you know, if if that wasn't the case, then maybe he's not performing at the level he is at the playoffs. So there's, a lot, there's, there's a lot more to it than um, you know just seeing the playoff sample size. But you do wonder if like a, a team like you know Houston, where they've been able to like, kind of plug in a lot of their role players on these minimum contracts. Um, you know if that's the the way you should be building around stars um it it's definitely a, an interesting concept versus you know you're looking at teams like like Boston and Toronto who you you know have a a much deeper teams um where when it comes to the playoff time you know they aren't able to use a lot of that rotation um so it 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 just brought some interesting questions about team building to my mind when I was watching that
1: yeah and and again, you know it's it's so important to to have a healthy roster too, and and it is amazing how how much it feels like, especially when they were uh, the Raptors were down two one in the series, how much it felt like they desperately needed the likes of OG and Inobi. And for most of the year, you know he, he's been a uh, he's been a solid young player. He's a really good defensive player, and he's capable of knocking down the three point shot. But uh, you wouldn't. I don't think you'd ever say at any point like, "Oh, we need this guy if uh, if the right. Raptors are going to succeed." But it really has felt that way at times.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think uh, OG would just be another, you know, body you can throw that can switch. on players can continue to spread the floor, and um, he was showing some chemistry with Marcus Ald late season as a, as one of the more willing cutters on the team. Um, and you know, it's 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 a shame. You know, he's had a tough season with you know multiple injuries with. Um, some personal issues he's been going through, and uh, it's unfortunate for him that he had this append- appendicitis uh, right before the playoffs, but, you know, hopefully he can make an appearance sometime soon, uh, should the Raptors uh, continue to find success without him.
1: Yeah, that was that was kind of, you kind of partially answered what I was going to ask, but have you heard any news in terms of when he's expected back? Because, you know, I was I just did a quick mm-hmm. Google search on uh, append appendicitis recovery time, and it says two to four weeks. And we're already basically in the, in the middle of that at this point uh, so you'd think he'd uh, he'd be getting close to return, but I haven't heard any reports of, of anything of the like. So
0: today was the first game of the playoffs that he's been seen on the bench um, so that's a positive um, so it looks like you know he's at least recovered to the point where he's walking around and um, how long from here to getting into playoff shape and and playing, um, they, ha- they haven't it hasn't been clear, you know, so the original diagnosis when Woj kind of tweeted about it was that he would be out until likely the Eastern Conference Finals, should the Raptors make it there um, and then more recently, I think Nick Nurse was asked about it after Game 3, and he kind of dismissed it and said he doesn't think that he's close at all, so um, it's, it is really unclear um, but I would like to believe that should the Raptors move on to um the easter conference Finals, that he would be available at some point during that series. Uh but at the same time, you know, even then it might take a couple games for him to adjust back to game shape. So it's uh, it's not very clear right now.
1: Well, I think fortunately for Toronto, you know, you you wouldn't be asking, you wouldn't be asking OG to, you know, to be playing 30 plus minutes, you know, if he could right. just give you a solid eight minutes a half sort of production you know and, and that wouldn't require as yeah. much being into great game shape for that but but yeah they could they certainly could use him and, and obviously hopefully he'll he'll have a full recovery and, and be healthy that's got to be the main priority but uh yeah, but you you briefly mentioned Kawhi Leonard and uh we've gone long enough without talking about uh uh, the guy that is maybe playing the best basketball out of anybody in the entire postseason. I guess I'll I'll ask you that question. Is is there anybody that you would rather have as an individual basketball player right now than Kawhi Leonard? It, <laughs> right now, I, I would say he's right at the top there
0: with maybe Kevin Durant as someone you'd rather have. Um, you know, I think Kevin Durant has been, you know, just Probably a little bit better than him offensively, just over the course of two series, whereas Kawhi's been you know better this series. Um, but when you look at the, the defensive prowess too, it's it's kind of a coin toss between them. Which, you know, I, I think that would be that was not something I would be expecting coming into the playoffs. But just but um, that's what's kind of it feels like right now. You know, the guy is scoring. You know, 30, I, I don't know what the average is after this game, to be honest, probably somewhere in the low 30s.
1: Well, heading into heading into Game 5, it was 38 a game on over 60% right. from the field.
0: Yeah, so I think that came down a little bit this game. But, um, yeah, he's been doing it all. He really has, and he really has the sense for the moment, too. Um, and he doesn't shy away from it. Um, and, you know, he's been guarding Simmons most of the series and, you know, been very effective at that. Um but that hasn't been, you know, a big ask because, you know, as you mentioned, you know, Simmons is kind of just standing in the dunker spot and acting as a screener. And, um, if you, uh, if you look at some of the clips of, uh, <laughs> plays where, where, uh, Kawhi is guarding Simmons as a screener, he just completely ignores him, um, on the screen and kind of ices it and kind of sits back on the, on the ball handler, um, because he has, uh, because he's just not worried about Simmons receiving the ball at all. Um, so he, he's kind of taking it easy on the defensive end, but then in kind of end-of-game moments where he switched on to Jimmy Butler, he's, he's really shown that he can still turn it on in those last five minutes and be an all-world you know, defensive player of the year-level player. Um, so he, he's been unbelievable. He, he's been better than advertised, like better than I could have ever imagined him being. Like some of the shots, the difficulty level, the shots he's making, um, it's been incredible. And he's been doing it against great defenders as well in, in Simmons and Butler.
1: Yeah, that shot he hit at the end of game four to essentially ice it, dribbling to his right, shooting a three over Joel Embiid uh, was right. was such an amazing shot. And yeah, he's he's uh, he's really you know he he is on the level of a Kevin Durant in terms of just being so unstoppable because you know th- like KD, they're they're both capable of scoring at all three levels. They're they're both lighting it up from downtown. They can get into the mid-range and get their shot off whenever they want, and they can get all the way to the rim. Uh, So, you know, you you mentioned if Philly has, you know, that's one of the team's strengths for the 76ers is they've got all of these wings and and these good defensive wings. But Butler even said in his press conference that he really doesn't have any answers. You just got to hope he misses. Yeah, I mean, there's
0: been times where Butler... In particular, I've seen plays where he's guarded him per- like guarded Kawhi perfectly, and Kawhi would just hit a ridiculous contested mid-range jump shot. Um, you know, he's really been in the zone, and um, you know, as long as the Raptors, as long as his teammates can make some of these shots, so they don't allow him to be doubled and triple teamed. Um, you know, he's been he, he's been you know he's been unstoppable.
1: The one thing I thought in terms of adjustments for this game five, and again the the Raptors came away with a, a blowout win. Really did well on both sides of the floor. But one of the things the adjustment Philly made in this game I thought was they started to show more uh, help towards Kawhi, and I thought that really opened up things for all the other Raptors supporting cast. And you know the I think that was a I think that was a mistake by Brett Brown and the Sixers because even though Kawhi was going off for, you know, every game of this series, they, they had done reasonably well defensively. And, you know, I think, you know, showing two guys on the ball really gave, you know, Danny Green opportunities to get going, you know, Kyle Lowry and Marcus Saul. I think I've always kind of been, as far as star players, I've been more of the the mindset of take away everybody else, make them spend a ton of energy scoring, and that takes away from their ability to defend and the other... Player's ability to defend because they haven't been getting the looks that they want.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, they, they've been in the games that Kawhi has dominated, right? One of them they took, they they walked away with the victory, right? And oh, I guess two of them they walked away with the victory, and then the the latest one, he. You know, he he willed them to a win, but they
1: were right there till the very end. And Philly didn't lose Game Four because of their defense.
0: No, absolutely. And in Game One, that they lost, you know, Kawhi went off that game too. But but Siakam was was unbelievable too. So they really had two problems there. Um, You know, I agree with you. You know, the way to beat the Raptors is to force Kawhi to continuously make these shots, and you know, hope that the law of averages will come back and he won't be scoring at a clip that was
1: being compared to, you know, prime MJ. <laughs> <laughs> right. So like, that's, that's
0: kind of like what you can do, right? And, um, but like for me, you know, I knew that, you know, this version of the Raptors tonight, even though Kawhi didn't have the insane offensive game he's had in some of the, you know, past games, I think this version of the Raptors is the best version of the Raptors in the playoffs when, you know, you're getting contributions from Lowry, you know, Danny Green is hitting multiple three-pointers um, Siakam is being selective uh, when he's attacking and when he's being more of a distributor, and then you know Gasol is being aggressive as well, and you know getting some good contribution from the bench. This is the best version of the Raptors, and you know you don't require Kawhi to score you know 40 points straight to win, and I think Kawhi is happier with that as well. So um, you know I think that the Phillies did make a big defensive lapse today.
1: Yeah, I I absolutely agree with you that. This was probably the Raptors' best game, even though Game One was certainly impressive. I think that was more just, uh, you know, a two-man show, whereas this felt much more like an, an entire team win, and they did it on both ends of the floor. But yeah, you know, the the other thing about you know making Kawhi beat you is there has been occasional games, and I would say he was having one of those games tonight, and that happened at, at random moments during the regular season where he just was his shot wasn't falling and you know if if you make him over the course of seven games score against you there might be a game or two where he's not able to do that very effectively
0: exactly um and i you know there's that's what you got to hope for right i think that that's um kind of been you know the reason why why is not you know spoken about offensively to the same breath of of kevin durant right kevin durant has done this consistently you know for Uh, Like multiple seasons and multiple postseasons in his career now, right? Um, Where it feels like it's inevitable that he can get to, you know, that that thirty points on on good efficiency. Um, You know, Kawhi, you know, he's been he's been had stretches where he's been able to do this, but um, you know, he hasn't really put together that seven game stretch where he's been unstoppable. Um, And you know, this series was kind of the the closest he's done to that. And um, you know, if if his teammates, you know, if Kyle Lowry and Danny Green and, you know, Marcus Saul continue to be zeros, then, you know, they would have had a tough time winning even with Kawhi scoring at that, you know, unbelievable play.
1: Yeah. And, and I do think another thing the Raptors did really well in game five was get out and run in transition, take advantage of some early, you know, transition opportunities. But, uh, let's, let's hear your prediction for the rest of the series and, uh, if you imagine the Raptors are gonna close this out on the road, or if this is going seven,
0: I think I think they're gonna close this out on the road. Um, you know, some of that might be my optimism from watching a great game here, but um, I, I think that you know the difference between kind of the Raptors and um, the Sixers. It feels like Brett Brown has played you know all of the adjustments that he can make. I don't know if there's another adjustment that he can make. Um, other than, you know, maybe play Kawhi straight up and then you're betting on, you know, Kawhi not having another unbelievable game. Um, whereas, you know, the Raptors, they just had the flexibility to make a lot of moves and it doesn't feel like the Sixers have an answer to these units now that they're matching up Gasol with Embiid more and, you know, playing some of these larger lineups that neutralize um, the Sixers' size. Um, and I think that, you know, they they might you know be a little beaten down after taking, um, you know, such a, it's a, it's such a blowout loss in a, in a crucial crucial game in the, in the series. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the Raptors, will, will close it out here. Um, it was great to see Danny Green get it going. Um, I always thought that he was kind of the key uh, for the Raptors offensively um, to, you know, really open things up for everyone else and and you know start some of these runs where the Raptors get really going. Um, and I think Mark Gasol is feeling a lot more comfortable Um, finding that balance between being aggressive and being a playmaker and I think those two guys um, really fitting well into their rules um, really takes this Raptors team to another level
1: yeah there was a funny moment in in game 5 I believe it was in the second half where uh, Gasol caught the ball on the right wing and was you know trying to be his unselfish self and uh, you know make a pass and then the crowd you could hear them start to murmur and get louder and louder as they're saying you're open shoot it shoot it and uh, he finally just, you know, put it up, and it uh, was nothing but net. But that I thought that was a that was a funny moment. But but yeah, I, I agree with you. I originally picked the Raptors to win it in five. I didn't even really think it was going to be this competitive. Uh, but uh, you know, you got to give Philly credit. You got to give Brett Brown credit for you know, in a lot of ways, changing kind of the, their style of play from what we saw in the regular season, and, and you know, going to more of a, a, a Butler and bead pick and roll centric offense.
0: <laughs> and, um, you know, you, you, but you never know, right? Like, if maybe Tobias Harris finally gets it going.
1: Well, and um, Embiid, you know, if, if if he has another game like he had in Game 3, you never know.
0: Exactly. Um, but I think that if the Raptors continue to play the way they did tonight, they're they're going they're tough to beat. Um, and you know, we we talk about Danny Green a lot. Um, I know you're you're one of the bigger you know, proponents of playing Danny Green more. And, yes. You know, with this series, I agree with you. Um. I was actually talking to a friend earlier today. And I said, um, Danny Green, minus dribbling, is one of the most elite role players <laughs> you'll see. I if, I don't have the stats, and I, I wish I could just break this down quickly. But the shots he makes when he just catches it and goes up versus you know any pump faking or or or, or putting the ball on on the floor even once, I feel like he's just automatic when he catches and shoots it. And, it's really frustrating to see when he decides to take a few possessions where he wants to pump and go, and, and, uh, or, or, or even like, you know, ISO post stuff, which I, I never understood why they ran those plays for him, especially in the playoff. But today, when he was just catching it and shooting it, uh, this is the Danny Green that i that I'd love to see and I think can be, you know, a crucial role player throughout these playoffs.
1: Yeah, he's got a bit of, a, albeit on a, a lot a lower volume, to like a Clay Thompson, where he had the sixty points on, you know, I think it was less than twenty dribbles or something to that effect. But, but yes, he's certainly one of the better shooters in the league. And yeah, he was he was having kind of a, a, a you know, he was he was having his his struggles in the early portion of this series. But it looks like he's he's kind of figured things out. And uh, but yeah, let's uh, let's move on to. To the uh, the other series tonight, which was the uh, Denver-Portland, and, and this was another, we, we unfortunately didn't have a, a close game this evening in, in what was two yeah. very anticipated game fives. Uh, Denver came out with an, a blowout win of the Blazers and taking a 3-2 series lead. What were some of your thoughts? I know you, you said you caught some of this game. What were some of your thoughts on it?
0: Yeah, I think that um, a lot of what happened here mirrored what happened in the, in the Raptors game. Um, the other guys stepped up. Um, Sap was fantastic in the first half. Um, Murray, uh, Harris, uh, Barton—they were kind of hitting some shots early there. Even Beasley came in and you know hit a couple shots. Um, and I think that that um, will be a big difference maker, you know, for Denver. When I love the way they play, I love the way they move the ball. Um, but when their guys aren't hitting shots, then uh, you know they, they really are able to kind of. Um, Portland is really able to kind of close in and focus on Jokic. Um, and I felt like, you know, the first half here, um, when Denver kind of built up that lead in the second quarter, um, it was guys like Millsap really stepping up, um, and I think that that was kind of the big difference maker here.
1: Yeah, it it really, you know, basketball sometimes can be an extremely simple game, and I feel like the, the, uh, the whole Denver playoff run has been pretty basic in terms of they've basically decided whether they've won or lost games just based on their own play. You know, you, you look at going back to the San Antonio series, they, uh, games one and for the vast majority of game two before Jamal Murray caught fire in the fourth quarter, just could not hit the broad side of a barn. And, uh, you know, Jokic is the type of, you know, very unselfish, great passing player that if he gets double teamed, if he finds a guy open, he's going to make the pass and it's up to those guys to hit shots. And, uh, you know, when... The games that Denver won, the likes of Jamal Murray and Gary Harris and, and occasionally Will Barton, were knocking down their shots. And when they've lost, it just hasn't been the case. And it, it's similar to uh, the first couple games of this series against Portland. You know, Game 1, their guys hit shots. They they won a, a pretty high-scoring encounter. Game 2, they ended up scoring, I think, 90 points just because they couldn't hit anything from outside. And as you said, in this in this crucial Game 5, I think Jamal Murray has grown a little bit as the playoffs have, have gone on. He's gotten a little bit more consistent and I think this is three consecutive games where he's played really well on the offensive end.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and what Murray's really impressed me with is not only just his shot making, his decision making has, has been a lot better too, and you know, being that secondary playmaker, um, you know, which is kind of weird to say as you know, he's basically been the starting point guard for the most season. But um, being able to you know have games like this where you know he's able to facilitate um as a secondary playmaker Jokic as well and really picking his spots uh he's he's been fantastic. Um he's made some tough shots this series too.
1: Yeah and he's he's been a he's that's kind of one of the things he's known for. He is just a tough shot maker. He's done it all season long. But uh you know the Nuggets just have to me you know when you when you talk about both of these teams have some advantages on the offensive end of the floor that the other team doesn't have a lot of answers for but i just feel like denver has more of those you know you talk about jokic in the post uh, Cantor can't really deal with him and and neither can the the backup bigs on portland you talk about that jokic murray pick and roll the blazers do not have an answer the 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 dribble handoffs with Jokic and basically anyone it doesn't seem yeah. like Portland has much of an answer and then also you mentioned Millsap played great in this game and he's played great in this whole series but because Portland plays a more you know modern style where their power forward is you know a menu or Harkless uh, they're playing basically a wing at the four whereas Denver plays a more traditional old school style with two you know actual big bigs out there. Millsap has an advantage on the post as well. So they've got so many options, and if one thing isn't working, they can just go to something else.
0: Exactly, exactly. And and you know, I think that that's their issue defensively and offensively. You know, they, it's it's been the opposite, right? They if they can't rely on guys like Harkless and Aminu to make shots, um, they're gonna have a really tough time. You know, be, beating some of the elite teams in the league. You know, you can't just rely on. Lillard and McCollum carrying you home, you know, every game, and you know they had a great game from, from uh, Seth Curry the, the other night too. Um, but you need these other guys hitting shots, um, and you know the, the value of these role players who are playing, you know, twenty five thirty minutes a game. Um, that really comes out to shine in the playoffs when you know, teams are really scheming to take things away from uh, Lillard and McCollum.
1: Yeah, and the 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 other big thing that. Uh, Speaking to that Portland offense and, and some of the struggles they've had, you know, when when Portland and, and Lillard runs a pick and roll, Denver has done a pretty good job of executing their defensive game plan and, and trapping Lillard and leaving the likes of of Harkless or Aminu, especially if they're above the break for threes, and just living and you know and just accepting those results. I think Portland needs to just do more of straight Damian Lillard isolation. You know, they've they've had a lot of success. Especially when Torrey Craig's been guarding Lillard, he's just not quick enough. Lillard's been able to blow past him. Anybody other than really Gary Harris, if if that's guarding Lillard, he's been able to feast. But the problem is, if if you are running a play that allows Denver to throw two on Lillard, they're going to do it. Exactly,
0: um, and I think that's a struggle because they can't even do you know the the classic you know LeBron or. A uh, KD uh, pick and roll offense where they just kind of hunt the switch and then attack you because, um, like you said, right? If, if you set that screen to, to get that switch, um, more often more times than not, you know Denver's gonna Denver will hide kind of their weaker defenders on, on one of Harquless or and then they'll just double off them and make them give up the ball um, and then force one of those guys to you know, play outside of their comfort zone as a as a you know playmaker coming down four on three. Um so Portland's really lacking that player. Um and you know, it's it's really uh it seems to hurt teams that, you know, uh, um, can attack them like this.
1: Yeah, and you know, we, we mentioned earlier that that Kawhi and KD have been a couple of the best players in these playoffs. Obviously Jokic is right up there with him. He has been absolutely phenomenal, and I think he's gotta you know, he's gotta be given a lot of credit on the defensive end as well. I think in that in that game, one win, he did a pretty good job of uh, when when Lillard tried to split those traps of getting his hands in there, and he deflected a couple of uh, of attempted drives down the middle. And that has really forced Lillard to to basically concede and, and and pass the ball up. He's not allowed Lillard to to turn the corner. And it's funny, you know, Mike Malone all season long has has kind of treated Mason Plumlee as as the Nuggets' best defensive center. But I think in this series, Jokic has done a better job on Lillard than Plumlee.
0: Jokic has been fantastic, you know, all series long. And, you know, just I was just taking a quick look at the game logs. And, you know, the minutes he's been logging, it's been pretty ridiculous. You know, you know looking at game 141 minutes, game 237, that, that quadruple OT, game 365 minutes. And following it up two days later with 38 minutes and then 34 minutes tonight, and again where he fouled out. Um, <laughs> you know, for a guy that you know, there's been a lot of knocks on his conditioning. You know, he's been doing, you know, carrying the load on offense, and then you know, doing his part on defense and not being a complete liability. He's been he's been actually been excellent. Um, and yeah, he's you know, he's really impressed me this this entire series, this entire playoffs, really.
1: Yeah, and his his ability as well to, you know, I think he shot the three ball better in the postseason than he than he did during the regular season, and, and that was the one big knock, I thought, you know, compared to last year, Jokic, I think, shot 38% during the season last year, and then this year he was down in the low 30s, but he seems to have maybe picked that confidence back up from beyond the arc, which makes him really tough because then he can pump and go, and he's got that ball handling skill, and, you know, he can he can make any pass that a that a guard on the drive can make. And and boy oh boy has he thrown some some absolutely brilliant passes in this series. But you know, the the two way play and as you mentioned, doing it on, on very heavy minutes, the resilience of the Denver team to, to lose that four overtime game and come back on the road and win is also really impressive given how young they are. Absolutely. And you know, for me like one of the things
0: that's Really impressed me about Jokic in particular as well I mean we mentioned you know like Jamal Murray's been great at clutch shot making too um but, but Jokic does not shy away from the moment there, there's been a lot of times when you know the Denver has just needed a bucket and Jokic will just take the ball into the post and you know find um a way to get himself a great shot um where you know he's been
2: basically unstoppable down there or you know like find like a cutter who's wide open
0: um he's been great down the stretch, and you know it's he—he he has this calming influence on the team. Where once he gets the ball in the low post, there in like a, in a late game scenario, you're just confident that you're going to get a good look out of
1: it. Yeah, and he—he uh, he plays at such a pace too, where yeah, it never feels like he's in sort of a rush. He's always he's always under control, and and part of that is due to the fact that he's not a great athlete, but. Uh, but he, I
0: don't
1: think he could play at a quicker pace than that. <laughs> right, but he certainly has maximized, or come close, to, I guess I shouldn't say that because he may be a lot better in two or three years, but uh, he has he has come close in my mind to maximizing what a seven-footer that, that has very little athleticism can be. He is, uh, yeah. he is really fantastic. But uh, speaking to some of the things on, on Portland side of the ball, Obviously, getting Harris off of Lillard by setting some off-ball screens, I think, would be a smart thing to do. You know, Harris has done a really good job of of getting his hand in there on dribble handoffs and getting some steals and getting some easy breakaway layups. So, you know, doing that and, and getting Lillard an easier matchup, I think, should be something Portland should be doing a little bit more. Uh, but then also, you know, Terry Stotts has been playing Evan Turner as the backup four. And he's been going up, you know, at the start of the second and fourth quarters against the likes of Paul Millsap, and Millsap has really been feasting on that matchup, as you would expect, because Turner can't guard Millsap, uh, and and also, you know, Turner does not provide any of the shooting that that going small would you would expect would help you with. Exactly.
0: Um, yeah, that, that he feels like another player that just having a tough time finding a place in the series as well. Um, and, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, he has, how many points do you think he has this series? It's, uh, it's, uh,
1: it's, it's not many. I think I heard somebody say that he's, he's only scored like one basket of the entire postseason. Yeah, so
0: he's, he's scored two baskets this series, both in game two. He has four points.
1: Man. In the entire series. And, I, I, you know, like. And I don't think he did hardly anything in the first round either. No,
0: yeah, very little. <laughs> we, like you just you, you can't you can't have him out there if that if that's the case, you know. Um, you know, and that's why you know, like going back to you know the Phillies here, Brett Brown, you know, it took a lot of balls for him to to say to McConnell, who's been a, a you know a solid role player for him throughout the season. You know, you're just not going to get minutes this series, and to go to Boban, who they played a lot this season, and say you're not going to get the series. And, you know, sometimes I feel like these coaches, um, you know, stick to rotations that you know they're accustomed to during the season. That and these players who just don't have a good matchup in the series and are really actually hurting them um, are still getting played. And, and you know, you don't want to cost yourself a series from that. And you know, I'm not necessarily saying that Evan Turner is going to make or break the series. Um, but to play him like 10 to 15 minutes a game when he's been a zero, it just doesn't
1: seem to make sense to me. Yeah, and and, and it, it is a tougher decision than we make it out to be because who are the alternatives? You know, for me, right. it's probably Myers Leonard. You know, I really do not like Myers Leonard as a player, but I do think he right. is a slight upgrade in this matchup over Turner. I think he, he at least can, can, can body up on Millsap and not get bullied. And then also... He provides more value offensively because he is a capable shooter, even though he's a, a an extremely flawed player. But that that's the issue is you know, you talk about, and, and that's what was so confusing to me about Fred Van Fleet and and his struggles is because I guess you 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 hit at it is that ju- it's just his size is the main issue, especially against yeah. Philly. But you know he's a player that I looked at. as a, he's a two-way guy? He's a good defensive player. He can hit the three. He can handle it a little bit. To me, that's exactly what you'd want. But but the playoffs are, are so demanding that some sometimes just a single flaw like size or the the inability to shoot the basketball can can be the the whole thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know we we've seen it just across the board. Like every year in the class, it seems like there's there's uh, role players who just can't find their way on the court. Um you know, it's, it's it's pretty funny how sometimes the uh, the playoffs can feels like it's almost a different game sometimes in the regular season.
1: Yes. Later yes, that's certainly the case. And the the other thing I wanted to talk about as far as Portland is, you know, obviously Damian Lillard got a ton of a ton of praise for, you know, hitting that series clinching shot, which was a absolutely ludicrous shot over Paul George from near half court. Uh, and, and, you know, he played really well in that series, but but I think a lot of his success in that series is just the fact that he was matched up against Russell Westbrook, and Westbrook is such a poor defender in terms of keeping track of his man and, and knowing where his man is, and Lillard just got a bunch of wide-open looks, just moving off the ball, or or Westbrook just helping for no apparent reason. And, and also, you know, he would he would dribble up to 35 feet, and or even 30 feet, and the, the Thunder, and Westbrook in particular, would just lay off him. And Lillard's like, well, I have this range, so if you're just going to give this to me, it's it's a pretty easy shot for me. But, you know, in this series, he's really struggled. I, I think he's shooting, uh, you know, heading into this game, I think he was shooting 20, around 26% from three, and I don't think he shot well tonight. So that number may have even gone down a little bit. But, you know, he's he, he, he two for nine tonight. So. Yeah, so, you know, he, he's worthy of, you know, he's deserving of praise for that first-round performance, but, you know, if 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 he's talking about being, if, we, if we're considering him being a top-ten guy, he's got to perform better against a Nuggets defense that was solid, but they don't have any, you know, real prime-time defensive players on, the, on that roster.
0: Yeah, yeah, give credit to, to Um You kind of mentioned um, how they were, you know, pressing up a little bit more on him, um, especially on the screen and roll. Um, kind of trying to force him to either, you know, take a tougher shot or to take the ball out of his hands. Um, and this is similar to, to the defense that, that New Orleans used last year that completely neutralized him. Yes. Um, you know, and I, I'm... I mean, I, I have a lot of issues with OKC. I'm not going to get into it now. Um, but the fact that, you know, that Billy Donovan had that sample of that series and didn't use that style of defense at all, um, <laughs> especially with the great defenders on that team, uh, I thought that was just a huge oversight. But, um, yeah, I mean, like, a part of it is he's not making the tough shots that he was making last series, and a part of it is to give credit to Mike Malone and um, the Denver defense um, for for making him a little bit more less uncomfortable here. And look at it, right, he still had some good games. He scored 39 in game one. Um, you know, albeit he's had some uh, tougher shooting nights here, um, and yeah, you gotta give credit to um, Denver defense for for taking him out of his comfort zone.
1: It goes to show you that, yeah, t- you know, the coaching is is a is a real big deal, and and I completely agree with your your sentiment about uh, about Billy Donovan. I, I thought it was a fireable offense his performance in that series. You know, and also not attacking Cantor, you know, constantly. I thought they they let him. Be out there and play, and you know Denver hasn't run Canter off the floor, but I think that's mostly because Portland's offense has been good with him out there, but I think Denver has done a good job of of attacking Cantor on the defensive end and 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 yeah you're right, Malone I think deserves a lot of credit he's done a good job of of uh, you know maybe yeah, looking back on that uh, that New Orleans series, and there was a lot of talk that Lillard you know spent all off season focusing on on how yeah. he was defended in that series and got a lot better. But uh, you know I, I think there is something to the fact that, uh, that there might just be some holes in his game that he can't he can't actually fix with uh, with that sort of style of defense.
0: I and mean, part of it is, is uh, you touched on it as well. It's, it's it's his teammates, right? Yeah. You know, he doesn't have a Draymond Green to, to toss the ball to when they double him. You know, thirty feet out of the rim to, to make a play, right? Um, and I think that you know, it's a that it's not completely his fault. You know, that this is a defense that teams are able to play because of the personnel that's on the court with them.
1: Yeah, and, and going back to my thoughts on they should just let him isolate a little bit more. I think the other benefit to doing that as opposed to running the, the pick and pick and roll is you can station your shooters in the optimal positions. You know, you can put Harkless and Aminu who as you stated aren't the greatest of shooters uh, in the corners though and make that an easier shot for them as opposed to if you're running just uh, in transition and then you're running a pick and roll, they could be all over the place. You know, there was one play in this game five where Lillard ran a, uh, you know, a pick and roll, got, got trapped and then just threw it up top to, uh, I believe it was Harkless who was wide open from the wing, but it's just, you know, Denver's going to live with that, especially above the break. Whereas, you know, in isolation, you can, you can put some of your weaker shooters into, into better positions.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'd actually like to see them run, you know, isolation would be interesting as well, um, but I'd like to see them run some more um, actions with, uh, you know, uh, uh, with McCollum as as a screener uh, for Lillard, or or vice versa, um, where, you know, you're making the defenders really make a decision there as to, you know, how you want to play, you know, a player that you know can kind of pick and pop there and be an actual threat to create a shot or to, you know, attack the defense that's rotating.
1: Well, and that's the that's the interesting thing, you know, when you when you compare the likes of of Lillard and and Steph Curry, you know, they're considered two of the best off the dribble shooters in the NBA. But I think the thing that separates Curry from Lillard is the fact that he's so good off the ball as well, and and perhaps it's more related to coaching and that Kerr has set up a system where off ball action is such a priority, whereas Stotts has not. But yeah, the the idea of giving McCollum the ball on one side, running a pick and roll, and having Lillard coming off an off ball screen on the opposite side would seem to be a really effective thing. But you you just don't see those sorts of actions that often. Yeah,
0: you, you more often than not see it the other way around with McCollum being kind of the the guy running off screens, uh, trying to get those opportunities. But yeah, I, I think that that you know it might it might be a part, part of coaching, and you know maybe it's. Part of it is, you know, just personnel with, um, you know, McCollum, maybe not not necessarily saying I haven't seen him being able to be a great playmaker, you know, I've seen him uh, show flashes of it, but, you know, he just ultimately, he's just not a guy that's had the ball in his hands as much as, you know, he may have if he was uh, in a different system or a different team without a great primary ball
1: handler in, in table. So let's hear your uh, your prediction for for the rest of this series. Of course, Denver just went up three to two. They'll be heading back to Portland for Game Six. Do you think it ends there, or are we going seven?
0: I think we're going seven here. Um, you know, Denver had a great game, but you know, I expect Portland to punch, punch back, especially at home. Um, you know, we haven't had the you know we, we had a great Game One from Dame, Damian Lillard, but he he always has the opportunity to kind of you know have one of those like crazy games um and I think that uh you know this Denver team we've seen them kind of had have, have games where they just struggle and and not be able to hit a shot so um, I, I just I, I don't trust their consistency and uh, I think that uh Portland will pick one up and then uh, it'll go seven and I think Denver will ultimately win the series
1: yeah there's there's a big part of me that wants to pick Denver in six because of how well they you know A ton of people were talking about, you know, Denver's home court advantage and the, or I mean, excuse me, Portland's home court advantage and how it would be hard for the Nuggets to get one. But they nearly got both in games three and four. So, you know, they they have, and they got that crucial game four on the road in San Antonio. So they've been a a pretty solid road team in these playoffs. So I wouldn't shock me if Denver's able to take game six, especially again after such a blowout win in game five. But but I I think I tend to agree with you that I think it's going to seven. Uh, but but I also do have the the Nuggets pulling it out. I think their home court advantage is just a little too strong, and, and I do think that they are the better basketball team. They just have yeah. a little bit, uh, you know, a few more options to go to offensively when things get really tough. Whereas uh, you know Portland relies just a little bit too much on the likes of Lillard and McCollum. But uh, let's uh, let's move on to the uh, to the other series in the Eastern Conference which is the, uh, the the Boston Celtics and the Milwaukee Bucks. Milwaukee taking a 3-1 series lead, and uh, this episode will be out on, uh, on Wednesday, so this will be, the, the, be out on the day of Game 5. Uh, but uh, do, you, do you see Boston having any chance of, of, of stretching this to potentially Game 6, or do you think this is over? Uh,
0: I, I, I'm leaning towards thinking that it's over. Um... I think that Milwaukee at home, uh, you know, especially you know after winning three straight games and and it was just a, it just they just look pathetic. Like the Boston looked pathetic down the stretch of that last game. Um, just playing a lot of isolation, like not looking like they trusted each other at all. Um, and Kyrie Irving kind of leading the way. They're looking really dejected and um, not really putting his imprint on the game. Um, I I think that uh,
2: I I think that. Um, the Bucs Bucks will finish
1: this. What, what do you think? Yeah, I um, you know, I still think there are some adjustments Boston can make to make this tight. But uh, I honestly have been really disappointed in in Brad Stevens' coaching in this series. You know, after after Game One, uh, I think Mike Budenholzer made some some nice adjustments. You know, Boston did such a good job of making sure they got back in transition. Horford was on Giannis and and preventing him from getting all the way to the rim. But what the Bucks did in, in you know games two through four was not only to, you know not have him necessarily handling the ball in transition, you know, run the wing and maybe get it so that the defense isn't completely set up uh, you know and, and prepared for you, but then also getting those shooters running into transition as well and get spotted up. So if Boston really does, you know, pack the paint, that they can get quick, open transition threes, and, and they've really thrived on that. And, of course, with Giannis, it is a really, a, you know, if you get those shooters in position, it's a pick your poison. Either Giannis is going to score if he's got ahead of steam, or, you know, they're going to get an open three-point look.
0: Yeah, and uh, I have no idea what Kyrie Irving was doing down the stretch there, where it seemed like he was calling on multiple possessions to to. For other players to switch, so he could guard Giannis. And I, I have no idea. Like, did you see? Did you catch that as well when you were watching the the game there?
1: Yeah, and that that's been one of my biggest disappointments about Brad Stevens is how willing his team has been to switch on the Giannis matchup. When Giannis, for the whole season, shot twenty four percent from three, and you know the first couple of games he he hit. You know, 50% or so from downtown and it seemed like they all of a sudden just panicked and started defending him like he was a threat from three and every screen that takes place, that was the adjustment Budenholzer made in the half court was, let's get Horford off of Giannis, and the Celtics have just obliged. They haven't even made it difficult.
0: Yeah, yeah that's uh... <laughs> it gave me bad flashbacks to uh, some former Raptors series <laughs> yeah. where just allowing the switch—I've never understood that. I, I still, to this day, do not understand why teams are, are you know, so willing to switch when the offensive player is looking for the
1: switch. Right. Um, or the play design—the screen itself—is the whole goal right. is to generate a switch. Right, because the idea of switching is to not
0: allow the offensive player to have the advantage when you know when your players are fighting over, but. If they're giving if you're giving them the advantage, then then, then the, the point of switching is negated. So um yeah, that that's never made sense to me. And and you know, Jonas has feasted any time uh almost any time a defender other than Horford has been on him.
1: Yeah, and and, and a perfect a couple of players I think in and a couple of teams here that are a perfect example, uh, is is Steph Curry with the Warriors and J.J. J. Reddick with the Sixers. You know, those two guys are the weak links on their team's defense, Steph because of his size, J.J. Moore because of his athletic- lack of athleticism. But yep. uh, both of those guys and those teams do such a great job of making it hard for the, for the opponents to, to get those guys on a switch. And, and what they do is they often will hedge hard and, and then you know force the, the ball handler backwards away from the basket, and then they're able to retreat back to their man and you know a lot of times and we've seen it in the in the Warriors Houston series we'll get to that here next but that yeah. that it often forces the team down late in the shot clock and and then all of a sudden they're isolating with 5 seconds to go against the guy they wanted to avoid in on defense yeah
0: yeah exactly um <laughs> yeah I, I just don't i don't see uh, a way that they pull it out on uh on
1: uh tomorrow night well, and you know the you got to give the again speaking to to Mike Budenholzer and the adjustments he made. I think the big adjustment defensively is they have been willing uh, themselves to switch a little bit because that Kyrie Horford pick and pop play was absolutely killing them. It killed them in the regular season, of course. The Bucks dropped their big man back in Lopez towards the rim to protect the paint, but the Celtics were running actions literally just designed to get Horford an open three. So Milwaukee and, and Bud did a good job of, of making some adjustments. They have switched a little bit more. And you'd think switching the likes of Lopez on to Irving and Bledsoe onto Horford would be death. But they, the Bucks have done such a good job in terms of, of double teaming. They've fronted the post. They've been able to rotate and get out to shooters. They, they have just done a, an incredible job of, of helping and recovering. Um, and and I
0: think that you know part of that too is just you know the, the Celtics are just not been moving the ball as well as you, know, you would imagine a team with you know the, the talent and the shooting that they have you know, should be. And I think that you know the, the books have done a good job recovering, but that's only because there's been one or two swings of the ball, or just uh, when you mentioned the, the switch you mentioned, where it just ends up being um, you know Kyrie ISO or a uh, or, or trying to you know uh, make a post pass. Uh, to feed uh, Horford on the mismatch there, so um, you know I think that if they move the ball a little more, you you would force some more rotations and maybe some breakdowns. But you know, you still have to give credit to uh, the Bucks for um, you know the defending well, you, you know despite well what, what I believe were some struggles um, by, by by Boston to take advantage of those mismatches.
1: And again, speaking to the the simplicity, sometimes you know we we break down these these series and in in brutal detail but uh you know some sometimes it is as simple as Kyrie Irving after game one has has not played well he's not made the typical you know he's another guy like a CJ McCollum that that is a a real tough shot maker and he just hasn't knocked down shots the last three games Gordon Hayward after having a productive game one off the bench you know has has been completely silent yeah. And, you know, you talk about the Bucks bench. I, I would have given the, the edge in depth to the bench. I think it's it's kind of a trend. You know, we we thought the Raptors had the edge on the bench over the Sixers, and that hasn't been the case thus far. I thought the Celtics had the edge in bench play over the Bucks, especially with Milwaukee not having Malcolm Brogdon. Uh, but that hasn't been the case either because the, the likes of George Hill and Pat Connaughton have absolutely killed the Celtics. And in that game four, the third quarter, it was pretty much a a, a back-and-forth ball game. Giannis and Middleton uh, pick up their fourth fouls. You think, okay, this is the moment the Celtics pull through here. They're at home. They're going to make a run. But the, the Bucks actually extended the lead.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, that's been a, a huge boon for them. I think that George Hill um, has been an absolute revelation. Um, you know, this is a guy who was great. Like... <laughs> In playoff series like two three years ago, and you know, I feel like uh, you know he had a bad playoff run with the with the Cavs last year, um, and a lot of people forgot that this guy was a productive player, and um, has been kind of a consistent playoff performer, um, from what I remember at least from his Indiana days, um, and you know he's he's been he's come up big for them, um, you know he's been come, he's come up big for them you know most of the series actually, especially in the last two games, uh, and you know, he's just another guy with that can hit shots and then, you know, off the swing can really attack. And if Kyrie Irving is going to forget about him on the, uh, on the defensive end, um, he's going to cut backdoor and, you know, beat him every time. Um, but, you know, I, I give credit to Bud for putting these players in positions to succeed. Uh, I think he's done a great job with the rotations and, um, you know, giving them uh, minutes in spots where uh, they've had favorable matchups as well.
1: Yeah, Hill is a is a really good story. You're absolutely right though. He was he was pretty bad last season with the Cavs. He looked a little bit washed up, but you know, yeah, just two or three seasons ago, I think he averaged nearly 20 points a game for the Jazz. Uh yeah. so, you know, he's certainly a guy that and yes, he had plenty of uh, of great playoff runs with the Pacers for a number of years and and with the Spurs early on in his career. So, He's he's always been a pretty good playoff performer, and uh, he. Must, I don't know if it was just a matter of he wasn't healthy or if it's the role that he's on. You know, there. Uh, I heard on um, I think it was a, a recent low post he was talking about how the likes of George Hill and Rodney Hood are both playing brilliantly in these playoffs, and they're both former Cavs, and that maybe that's a, uh, um, you know, maybe that's an issue with uh, with LeBron and his inability to to really let his uh, his fellow teammates. Let loose and, and play their real game.
0: Yeah, uh, I think it's it's part of that. Uh, I don't want to get too much into LeBron, but uh, you know we we saw a little bit of that with uh, with the Lakers' young players this year, um, where Brandon Ingram was a guy who was you know developing and you know he took a step back this year and you know diminished some of his value as a prospect as well uh, because he wasn't able to kind of run some of the pick and roll action um, that he was accustomed to, and, you know, being built a little bit more of, the, of a ball handler there, but, yeah, I don't want to get too much into LeBron, but, uh, I mean, uh, I'm sure Cavs fans are not, not the most pleased to see, uh, two of these guys, um, really performing and contributing to, uh, to to, to to making playoff runs right now.
1: Yeah, to put all the Cavs fans at ease, even if Hill and, and, and Hood were playing at this level last year, they, they may have taken one game off of the Warriors, but, uh, Probably the game one <laughs> yeah exactly uh, but uh but yeah, so you you said it, you think uh, you think Milwaukee's got this, and, and you're expecting them to close it out uh on Wednesday night,
0: yeah, um, I think barring like you know major letdown or or Giannis having the rare you know off shooting night, <laughs> he doesn't seem to be shooting the ball very much at all, he seems to be getting most of his points in the restricted area um. Yeah, barring that, I, I I think that the Bucks are going to wrap the up. The Celtics just don't seem to to have an answer. Um, and but you know uh, we'll see. I, I'm excited to see if Brad Stevens can uh, prove to us once again that he's one of the elite coaches in the league.
1: Yeah, I um. I actually think Boston stands a chance in Game Five. I certainly think the series is over. I think Milwaukee wins it in six or seven. But I think Boston might have one last stand. I think uh, you know, uh, I don't expect Kyrie to continue to struggle like he has the last couple of games. I think he's gonna he's gonna come up and and, and play hard and. And uh, I think the, you know, the fact that Smart came back last game, maybe he'll get a, a larger role and, and maybe he'll have an impact on the defensive end a little bit more than he did in that game four. Uh, but but I, I do think, you know, Milwaukee with home court, with game seven at home, up 3-1, I think they, they've got this series pretty much wrapped up. But, but uh, I, I originally, at the start of the series, I picked Boston and six, and I'm already wrong about that, so. Uh, uh, but uh, I, uh, I I expect Boston, and, and part of it is just that I, I still am kind of holding on to the the potential that this team had heading into the season. Maybe uh, I still see glimpses of what this team could be. Uh, but uh, but but yeah, Milwaukee certainly has looked like the best team in the NBA, and, and Giannis certainly has has shown up and, and is certainly looking like the MVP of the league.
0: Absolutely, uh, they've been great. And um, you know, looking ahead, do you think that um, you know the the Bucks playing their best game, and you know the likes of the Raptors playing their best game, who do you think? Which team do you think has the higher peak? Ooh, that's a
1: that's a really interesting question. Um, I I think the. You know, the, the matchup is fascinating because I think both teams have some solutions defensively to what the other team likes to do. You know, Toronto can throw the likes of Kawhi or Siakam. Uh, or even a guy like uh, Ibaka, I think, could maybe stand a small chance against the likes of Giannis. You know, he's got some some quickness and size there. So they, they've got some guys they could throw at Giannis. They're, they're able to, unlike... Unlike Boston, I think they're able to switch a little bit more effectively and not be hurt. Uh, you know, you talk about the likes of Danny Green, Kawhi, and Siakam. Those guys have been able to switch pretty effectively all season. And and Kawhi, also the, the master of the mid-range, is kind of the... Uh, that's the kryptonite for, for the Bucks defense there. They concede mid-range jumpers, and Kawhi is, is really the master of that area.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I... I... I'm a little biased. I, I, you know, you, I, you might remember
2: my super political answer to which team I thought was coming out of the East. Uh, but I still hold to that.
0: I, I think the Raptors at their peak are the best team in the East. Uh, we saw it tonight and I think that you know the defensive, uh, you know, they've already been great defensively but when they're really rolling like tonight that defense leading to fast break offense um, and their ability for some of their other guys to hit shots when, you know, Kawhi is, is creating all that space for them. Um, uh, I think that it's an intriguing matchup. But I think the Raptors are a better team, um, but Milwaukee's been doing this night overnight.
1: <laughs> so uh, right, you know, and the Raptors have had multiple games where they've been, you know, a lot of inconsistent players. And if Brogdon can come back and and play like his usual self, you got to imagine the right. Bucks, uh, especially with the way the the Raptors bench has played, they'd have the edge in bench play. But the, the, the biggest question, Mark, I have about that potential series is, you know, I think the Sixers are are perfectly set up to have, you know, even though Kawhi has gone off against them, they've got a couple of guys they can throw at him in in, uh, in Simmons and Butler, and then also have a guy for Siakam and Embiid, whereas Milwaukee, you know, you, you put Giannis on either Siakam or Kawhi, but then who do you put on the other guy, and... That that's a big concern I have the, for the Bucks in terms of their ability to defend the Raptors
0: yeah yeah you, you'd be asking Middleton to really have to step up um,
1: and he's just yeah. too small for either of them <laughs> either Siaka yeah, or yeah. Leonard
0: yeah um and for the Raptors if and can come back that's a guy that you can bring off the bench where you you have a large beefy you know long defender that you can have on you know Giannis the entire game um and, you know, not tire any of them out. <laughs> um, yeah, that's... Bop, I think Ibaka might be a little bit too slow um, to guard Giannis off, off the break there, but, um, uh, you know, it's another body, another body you can
1: throw at Yeah, I think this. if this playoffs has taught us anything, I think it's taught us that OG Anobi is Toronto's, like, second most important player. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it sure feels that way sometimes. <laughs>
1: Uh, so let's let's move on now to the final series uh, and and break this down a little bit, and that is the the Rockets versus the Warriors. Yep. Uh, this uh, this series is tied at two, and uh, game five will be Wednesday night. And the first thing I wanted to ask you about this series, I'm sure you've heard about it because it was the the talk of the internet for for several days, but the whole landing area conversation on a jump yeah. shot. Yeah. Uh, of course there were there were those couple of calls on Clay Thompson where it seemed to me as if he 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 jumped into uh James Harden and committed fouls but there were no calls and then there was of course the shot near the end of the game in which the Rockets had an opportunity to tie and the NBA determined that Draymond did not foul him and it was Harden kicking his leg out uh to to draw the foul but what are your thoughts on on all of that uh, uh, I'll call it nonsense <laughs>
0: I mean, I wish they would just decide and call it one way or the other. Like, I can't tell on any play which way they're gonna call it. You know, I've seen this all season long. Like, I like players have you know been getting this call, um, and then all of a sudden they weren't calling it at all that game. Um, You know, as a Raptors fan, like uh, Kyle Lowry has been a guy who's been called on the kickout foul several times this season. Um, I, I was shocked. I I thought that some of those fouls. Um, or some of those non-calls, I guess, on Clay Thompson were clear fouls. Um, and, you know, you just can't, like, you can't hit a guy while he's in a shooting motion. Um, and, you know, James Harden has an unconventional shot. He does jump forward, you know, a lot more than other players, but I don't think that that seemed like an unnatural motion to me. Um, you know, for, for players, you know, when you think about the motion that he makes when he steps back so far to generate force to shoot the ball... <laughs> He, he's gonna have to jump forward <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that that's completely you know out of the realm a, a lot of players jump forward on their jump shots um uh, i i i wish it wasn't you know the main conversation but um you know i think the, the nba has to figure out you know how they want to call that and then just call it consistently because like this being a conversation is, is not fun
1: <laughs> yeah and you know, there's... The My personal stance is that, yeah, all three of those clay contests were all fouls, and, and the one at the end was not. And I think the main difference there was that uh, on that play with Draymond Green at the end of the game, Harden stuck his leg out in the contact Green made. Uh, he jumped essentially basically on a, a perpendicular angle to, to where Harden was shooting the basketball. Yeah. And and made contact with the lower portion of Harden's leg, which obviously happens if you extend your knee and and stick that leg out. Whereas Clay, you know, if you if you go back and look at those replays, he's actually making contact on Harden's hip or his thigh area, yeah. uh, and 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 the, and he's jumping forward towards Harden. Yeah. The the other you know you you watch a guy like Andre Iguodala when he's guarding Harden. There was a a couple of perfect examples in, in game three I noticed uh, in that game that went to overtime where he made a perfect contest where you're you're jumping essentially to the side of the shooter and yeah. you put your arm out towards the ball and towards the player's face, but your body's you know, directly to the side. So only if the shooter jumps sideways would there be contact. Um yeah. so and, yeah. and to me that's how you've got a contest in, in today's NBA. These guys that are you know, flying out there and, and jumping straight into the shooter. Uh, yeah. it, it's just, uh, to me, it's just a boneheaded play.
0: Yeah, and, and Harden's far too good of a shooter. Um, you know, say what you want about him, whether he's, you know, hunting the calls. He's probably within the rules of the NBA. You know, you, <laughs> I think people look at, like, little things like that and take away from the fact that this guy's an absolute dominant scorer all season long and, and has carried that into the playoffs. Um. Yeah, there was plays there where it, like, it looked like they were making contact to his midsection. I I don't understand how you don't call
1: that. Uh-huh. Right, and and you know the the obviously this rule came about in large part due to that you know that Kawhi play in the Western Conference Finals where he Zaza Pachulia stepped under his foot and he sprained his ankle right. and was out for the rest of the series. So so the main reason for the call is player safety. But, but I also think there's just a competitive advantage gained by the defense if you're allowed to jump higher and contest the shot and let your momentum fall into the shooter. You're, yeah. you're able to contest you know, better and, and make the shot that much more difficult. So, so I think not only should it be a foul because of the potential player safety, but also because the defense is gaining an unfair advantage by making those sorts of contests.
0: Yeah, uh, I I I completely agree with you. You know, if you if you're allowed to contest without any, um, <laughs> without any you know concern about hitting the player post shot, uh, as a shooter, you know, how do you prepare your body for the potential to be you know run over <laughs> after you release the shot? Yeah, it's uh, what do you uh
1: yeah, to you're, your. Bodies? you are pretty vulnerable in that position and and the other the other argument i've heard a lot of is like who is entitled to that that space that neither the offensive player or the defensive player is inhabiting that they're both jumping into and for me it's the it's the offensive player because he's the one jumping first so in essence the defensive player is reacting so it's an it's a similar to me as a guy driving down the lane and he j- takes off for a layup or a dunk and a defender slides in front of him to take a charge. If you do it after the the lift off, it's a block.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, and I, I think it's just it's it's getting to the point of you know being ridiculous. If the way that they're gonna guard James Harden is to you know be underneath them and to hit him in his in his thigh and hip area, and, and for that to be a legal contest.
1: Like that's ridiculous. Nobody wants to watch that. Right, and right. and and I get that you know the referees don't want to blow their whistle. They don't want to have you know eighty free throws and constant stops of the action. But you know if if you blow those first couple of fouls on Clay Thompson for one, he'd be out of the game with foul trouble. But yeah. then uh, also, yeah, he'd probably stop doing it. Yeah,
0: exactly. Like like nobody wants like to, to allow that to continue to happen. Like nobody wants. To watch three point shooters, which, you know, a pretty exciting part of the game when the guys like Harden can hit these contested, you know, step back threes to just be, you know, getting, you know, uh, for Black Matter are being taken out <laughs> of the lower bodies. Like, the, nobody wants that to be a defensive strategy either. So, uh, maybe you clean that up. Well, and uh, the, the,
1: the, another, another call that's, it's, it's kind of similar in my mind that I've seen a lot of that that goes in favor of the defense and and I should say too there there are a lot of calls that I think should be changed you know the the forearm shoves that the offensive players do to create space should definitely yeah. be yeah. be uh, offensive fouls and they don't do a good enough job with that but another one that's similar to the you know the landing area on the jump shot is when a when an offensive player is driving in and you know there was a play in in that game 3 of the Warriors Rockets where Harden takes a floater over Draymond Green yeah. And Green is running at him, going to block the shot, misses the ball, and then there's a giant collision of the two of them. To me, that's a foul as well. You know, if uh, and even in the event that he necess- he even got the block, I still think that's a foul because you know you you don't want those sorts of collisions in an NBA game. Yeah,
0: yeah, and, uh, and, and you know, then conversely, there's the play that I thought was was a charge at the end of that game when. Uh...
1: Right Green, when I like got there in time and they didn't call it a pardon. Exactly. Called, yeah. Uh, same play. Yep. And and in that situation, instead of Green jumping up and jumping forward, he got in position and was standing stationary. You're absolutely right, and I think the NBA confirmed that, that should have been a charge. Yeah. Although you know, and and the NBA doesn't do this enough either. I, I apologize that we've gotten into an officiating tangent here, <laughs> but uh, the the NBA doesn't do enough of the. It's a charge, but the basket counts. And to me, that 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 play would have been a situation where he got rid of the ball before the contact. The basket should count plus the charge.
0: Interesting. Yeah, they never they they, they never call that. that. That's a good point. It's interesting. Interesting thought. To just wanted to you know, to take a you know as much as officiating talk. Um, just a see-hearted. You know that floater. That that is an incredible shot. He's added to his arsenal. The fact that he can basically take off from like one step inside the free throw line, um, and you know be- get like uh, essentially a shot at the rim, um, where he also has the option to you know throw that lob up to Capella, um, like, That's really, I think, it's just opened up his game so much that now he has this like third shot. <laughs> you know, outside the step back three, or you know, just driving, you know, straight to the rim. He has this in between shot. Uh, which has been unstoppable as well. He doesn't seem to miss any of those. Um, I, I just want to say that's that an incredible shot, and he's able to draw a lot of fouls off of that as well, which I'm sure rile up you know, uh, people who are not the biggest fans of Harden's game. Um, but he just seems to kind of come back every year and you know add something interesting to his game. Um, and, and I think that floater has been uh, really impressive, especially in, the, in how he's used it in some of these playoff settings.
1: Well, and he he adds things that you know are complements to his his previous things he's added. You know, the floater is a yeah. perfect complement to him adding the step back because his his step back being so lethal has forced defenders to play on his side a lot, which has given him that runway. And a lot of defenses yeah. have opted to have that big drop all the way back to the rim. So yeah, that floater is the perfect you know again kryptonite to to that that defender staying on his side. So yeah, he he is a, he is a great example for for players out there that even after winning the MVP, he's still adding elements to his game. It is really impressive, and and he's had a pretty impressive series, especially in the two games in Houston uh, after he struggled so mightily last year against the Warriors' defense. What are some things you've noticed? Is it is it just a matter of him knocking down shots? Is it the, the those added elements you mentioned to his game, or what is what has allowed him to be a little bit more effective against the Warriors this time around?
0: Yeah, I think it's a little bit of, of that, um, you know, adding those that in between game, um, and I think that uh, you know Capello is a little bit more uh, effective, um, uh, not so much last game, but uh, in game three he was. Um, and you know, I think that uh, adding those elements to the game has really opened things up. And uh, it, it feels like the the Warriors' defenders have kind of taken a small step back as well. Um, I, I just don't think that they they look necessarily as effective as they they have in the past. Um, and I think that that's uh, allowed Harden to uh, really really get going. Um, but you know, what, what have you kind of saw?
1: Yeah, I I agree with you. I think the the biggest one to me is Iguodala. You know, he still he still has the great hands. He still is in pretty good position. But I've seen a few more of those blow buys pe- that where Harden is able to get completely past Iguodala that I didn't see last year very often. Uh, but then also, you know, the I think the the biggest difference in in Harden's offensive game this year compared to last is I really feel like he got even more comfortable. With that step back three, and uh, you know I think he's he's much more comfortable taking it over just about anybody going right or left, and uh, he he's been able to just knock some of those down this series, uh, so yeah I, I think he's uh, he's just been a little bit better, and that's been that's been pretty important because Houston's just barely survived a couple of games in Houston. <laughs> of course, the overtime in Game Three, the Warriors made a frantic comeback at the end of Game Four. And the other factor that I think has has sort of decided the the first four games has been the offensive rebounding. The Warriors dominated at Oracle on the offensive glass, and then P.J. Tucker, uh, you know, was just feasting on the boards uh, in in the two games in Houston. Yeah,
0: you're absolutely right. P.J. has been great the last two games in Houston. Um, You know, anytime P.J. can can knock down some of those open threes in the corner as well, it's... uh, it's it's big for this team that um, really feels like at times you know, they're making trade-offs between their shooters and their defenders. Um, when PJ's going, uh, it it really does you know help this team um, that that relies so heavily on Harden's offense.
1: Yeah. So the the other big story, and in, in the, especially with these last couple of games, has been Steph Curry's struggles. You know he was he was awful in Game Three missed a uh, missed an embarrassing dunk at the uh, near the end of the game. Yeah. Uh but his three-point shot has not been falling. He hasn't been as good finishing around the rim. He he was better in game 4, but still the three-point yeah. shot did not go down for the most part. Uh, what what are you seeing out of him and and do you imagine it's just the injuries? And I know he, you know, he he had that uh, ankle sprain at the end of the Clippers series, which is another Uh, another reason why you need to get those series over and done with as soon as possible, because stuff like that can happen. And then also the, the dislocated middle finger on his left hand.
0: Mm Um, I mean, it's, it's always hard with Curry and, uh, saying like what, 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 like how much of an impact his injuries have. I'm sure it has some impact. Um, but you know, from what I've seen on the court, he's missing a lot of shots that he's, you know, usually comfortable making. Um, and it, it does feel that he's he not as aggressively I mean, the last game he was, but the game before, it didn't feel like he was as aggressively hunting some of those shots. Um, almost at times, like he's deferring a little bit more to, to Durant, who's you know been spectacular this entire playoffs. Um, but I, I think, you know really, you, you can dig into a lot of different things, but I, it just feels like he's missing shots that he usually makes. Well, what have you seen?
1: Well, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you, but I also think that people don't give enough credit to potentially injuries being a reason why you miss shots as well. You know, you, you rely on your, your lower uh, your lower body to, to get that lift. And, and and also, you know, with some of his struggles finishing around the rim, his ability to get lift and, and hang in the air, you know, if you're in the air a split second less, that makes finishing that much more difficult. I know, given that I'm not a very good athlete, I struggle to finish at the rim whenever I'm playing at the YMCA. But... Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, you know, I I think he's certainly not you know not a hundred percent, and and yes, maybe some of it is just uh, some 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 random bad luck that he's dealing with that he's just not knocking him down. But they certainly need him to to step up and 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 what are your thoughts in terms of of what the Warriors can do differently to kind of regain momentum and and win this series? Um. Yeah, I, I think that uh,
0: I I think that you know, putting the ball in having Durant's hands
1: and telling him to take him home <laughs> could be effective as well. Because at the end of the day,
0: you know, like you, know, Tucker's putting up a valiant effort. Even when they, you know, switch Capella out on him a couple times, like <laughs> they've had they they've had players they can put on him, but no one can really guard him. Um, and you know, he they they lost you know, a game, you know, that that overtime game, despite Durant having forty six points. Um, but I think that. He needs to take shots in the high twenties. Like he shouldn't have a low twenties shots uh, in, uh, in terms of shots uh, taken. Um, and I think that uh, he, you know he's the one guy that's really unsolvable. And uh, he in game four early in the game, it definitely looked like he was deferring a lot more. He was really trying to get Clay and Steph going. Um, but you know I want to see an aggressive Kevin Durant, and you know I think that uh you know the, the Rockets really don't have an answer for that. Um and then, you know, maybe even throwing him on uh on harden a few more possessions to just kinda get him out of the comfort zone as well. Um I, I the, that's what I kinda see. Um I think the Warriors at the end of they do still have more talent. Um you know they're not gonna have a complete answer to stopping James Harden. Uh but I think on the offensive end they can they can do a little bit better.
1: Yeah, I um it's uh I don't know if that's a uh, ringing endorsement for the Warriors chances if you're expecting Kevin Durant to do more than he's already done in this series. <laughs> but uh but uh yeah, there there are times where where Curry just gets so fixated on, you know, the beautiful game that they don't just do simple stuff like the the Steph Durant pick and roll in, in either direction, whether that's Durant with the ball or Curry with the ball. Yeah, sometimes you just need to do the simple play and give the ball to your best players and let them go to work. But, you know, also yeah. the the Durant taking a ton of shots and, and just doing kind of iso ball also a little bit plays into the Rockets' hands in terms of the pace of play and, and slowing the game down.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah no, I, I think that's uh, that, that's a fair point. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I, just, I want to send him a more pick-and-roll for him. I, I want him to, you know, be more of the, the key decision-maker. I think that he he is a good playmaker. Um, you know, he can, he can get the ball to his teammates. But um, I, I just, it, it almost feels like he's making the choice between deferring versus attacking. And I, I just want to be aggressive to to hunt out, you know, when to attack and, you know, when to, to make plays rather than kind of, it feels like he's slipping on and off the switch a lot. I don't know if you've, you've, you've felt that as well.
1: Yeah, there is, you know, there, there has always been uh, that kind of, situation. it's always been a little bit of a of a struggle where the Warriors with their old style of play versus the ISO ball that Durant likes. And mm-hmm. you've also seen at times when Durant's really had it going and they have gone with that ISO ball that yeah. Curry has kind of felt like he's lost a little bit of rhythm out there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's uh it's not the worst problem to have, but uh Yeah, I mean they I think that just with the way that it's going right now and, you know, Curry potentially having those injuries affecting his shooting ability, you know, I'd run, you know, even more of the offense through Durant and, you know, hope that you can get, you know, Curry going, you know, off the ball and, you know, potentially, you know, as you mentioned, using him as a screener to get some more looks. But I think ultimately, you know, like, Clay's not going to, you know, miss... You, know, you go one for six for three very from three very often. Um, Curry's been I think shooting in like what the low, the mid mid twenty percent from three, and that's not going to happen very often. Um, I think that you know the, the, those guys need to just keep shooting, and um, you know they're going to hit their shots. And then uh, on the defensive end, um, to continue to kind of load up on Harden and you know not let you know some of the other guys get
1: going. Yeah, I mean, and it still is important to note that the Warriors do have home court advantage. They'll be home for games five and seven, which that was the reason I, I ended up picking Warriors in seven to start the series, and the big part of that, I thought I thought this was going to be extremely tight, but I thought the home court advantage might pay off for them. Another reason I think the the Rockets have been able to get back into this series, I think, is the play of Austin Rivers. You know, there was, there was a lot of talk about Trevor Reason and his absence for this team this year, and certainly they've missed him a little bit, you know, in the minutes where P.J. Tucker's not matched up on Kevin Durant. Durant has gone wild. So having another guy like Ariza out there to defend him would be valuable. But offensively, I didn't think it was going to be a big deal because Ariza, you know, infamously had that, what, over for 11 in game 7 from 3. Yeah. I think he shot 20% in that series. And Rivers has provided a lot better offense for them off the bench than a, than a guy like Ariza did.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And,
1: uh, eight for fifteen rivers from three so far, and, and and he missed game one. So in three games, he's already hit eight threes. And he's played some serious minutes for
0: them. He's played uh, in his last um, in his last few games. You know, he's played like kind of in the in the high twenties. Even a thirty-three minute game there. So yeah, uh, you know, he's he's been an absolutely crucial member of the team, um, which you know you would I would have never expected that um from you know what what, what how what he look like when he was with uh with washington there earlier in the season so uh
1: what's your what's your prediction for the rest of this series
0: i think the warriors are going to take it I, I think it does ultimately go to seven
1: yeah i uh, i agree with you there although the the after these two games i certainly would not be shocked if houston's able to come back and win this it it, it uh you know, when they were down two zero, it certainly seemed like a daunting task having to win four out of five. But now they only have yeah. to win two out of three, so uh, uh, yeah. it is certainly feasible. But uh, it'll be uh, really fascinating, as like all of these series, I think will be really fascinating to watch. And of course, the conference finals and, and NBA finals will be will be really intriguing as well. Is there any other thoughts you had, Stephen, about the uh, the the playoffs as a whole? Um, I
0: think that this this playoffs, you know. Uh You know, with LeBron being out of it, we've kind of had a chance to see, and, you know, you have to give credit to the players who have just been absolutely performing, but there's been some great individual playoff runs here. We've touched on, you know, a bunch of them, you know, Kevin Durant, James Harden, Nikola Jokic, Kawhi Leonard, um, you know, even Embiid, Joel Embiid has had his moments, um, Giannis, of course. Um, You know, know, we've talked, we've said it before, this might be the most talent we've seen in the NBA, And um, it's it's uh, it's really great to see kind of um, you know that talent spread across the league and seeing a lot of different teams where um, a lot of these individual talents have been able to shine through Um, and we've seen some great performances so far so um, you know I thought that it's it's been a great playoff so far.
1: Yeah, and you know with LeBron out, as you stated, it's it's going to be interesting to see how the you know the the storyline of these playoffs when it's all concluded. You know which of these players kind of steps up and maybe takes the mantle as as the best player in the game. I, I very much feel like it's it's kind of up for grabs at this point.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, and, and, and even beyond that, right? I mean, we might see it. Um, you know, like the, the Warriors have a, a tough path to the finals. You know, they have to get past this Houston team, um, and they you know they you know took a little bit longer of a time to get past that Clippers team. Um, and then you know the path to the, out of the East is not easy for any of these teams either. Um, so it, it's, I think we have some interesting series ahead.
1: Yes, and it'll be uh, it'll be a, a really nice uh, nice change of pace that we won't have Cavs Warriors for the uh, 18th consecutive <laughs> year. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, which, is, uh, which, which series are you most excited to see uh, conclude? You mean out of the second round series?
0: Yeah, out of these, uh, which ones are? I guess which one are you most excited
1: to watch the rest of the series for? I, it's got to be Houston Golden State uh, yeah. because I genuinely don't uh, don't really know which way it's going to go. I, I think it's uh, um, you know a lot of people have complained about the you know the, all the free throws and the style of play and, and that a lot of these games have been grinded out affairs. But but I, I've found both last year's Western Conference Finals and this series to be absolutely fascinating. And of course, there's. Yeah. There's so much talent on the floor. There's constant, you know, amazing plays happening. I I love watching the, that series, and and I'm very excited to see how it uh, how it finishes up. Exactly. Yep.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the uh, the shot making and the uh, and the playmaking down the stretch for these series has been has been great. Um, I'm excited to see you know how, how that plays out for the next, hopefully, the next three games of the series.
1: Yes, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get a, a solid conference finals and NBA finals as well. Well, Stephen, thank you, uh, thank you so much for for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, thanks for having me again. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can uh, you can subscribe to the program on iTunes. If you can leave a, a rating and review, that would be greatly appreciated as well. Uh, the show is also now on Spotify. Uh, if you can uh, give the show a follow, again a rating on there uh, that uh, that really helps a lot. If uh, if you've got any uh, questions or comments or uh, or ideas for uh, for future episodes, uh, you can contact me. Uh, on Twitter, at Garrett Bouguet, and also uh, my email is g-bouguet at onu.edu. So uh, feel free to uh, to uh, give me any of your I, ideas. I, I love to hear from uh, from the people listening to the program. And uh, enjoy the next week of the NBA calendar, and uh, have a great rest of your day.
2: Leftovers or the DMV Number or <laughs> House Cleaning.